honesty from a drag queen. Finally. I got that for you. Curse words that haven't aged very well. A fruit in Malaysia that is the most expensive you can find. There's only one tree that grows this fruit. One in the whole of the planet. And you won't believe how expensive it is for what it is. I got that and more all coming up. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. Hey, uh, Aldwin Wong, one, two, three. Good evening, good morning, good day, good night. See ya. No. <laughs> Hello, Aldwin. Good to have you along for the ride. Um, before we get started, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I've got lots going on tonight and uh, lots to get to. But I want to take a minute to uh, share a moment of some sad news for all of us here in Malaysia and around the world, really. And I only just found this out half an hour, 45 minutes ago. We have lost a legend. We have lost an amazing, sweet soul. Adi Benor passed away this evening, just a few hours ago. She was 51 years old. She passed from ovarian cancer, which she had kept secret from everyone. I had the uh, remarkable chance to work with this lady in a couple of TV shows I directed and at least one, maybe two TVCs, television commercials that I directed. Um, she was such an amazing talent. The voice of a songbird, an incredible actor. And in addition to all that and all that talent, she was an amazing, sweet woman, um, just the most personable, approachable, incredible woman, uh, and uh, her loss is a big loss for not only the entertainment industry, but for everyone. So Adiba, we will miss you dearly, and we, uh, we will think of you often. A sad, sad moment in uh, in Malaysia here. Adibanor uh, passed uh, today at 51 years old, and uh, like I said, she's uh, she's going to be badly missed. She was, and there's a picture of her here on the screen now. If you're listening on the podcast, you can uh, you can check that out. This is from my post I did as soon as I found out about it. And an uh, article in the Malay Mail, um, entertainer Adi Benor dies at 51 from ovarian cancer. I didn't have time to put these links in the show notes tonight, so sorry about that. But if you just just uh, do a search, you want to find out more about this incredible woman, um, please do. And uh, give her a moment. Think about her tonight for just a bit. And uh, we wish her family and all. All the best and our condolences to them. Wow. Not the kind of news you want to start a show off with. It just put a wet blanket on everything tonight. But uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, to share that and uh, pass that along. Yeah, uh, Aldwin says, no, I watched her a few times in my childhood. I'll tell you what, <laughs> uh, a story that not many people know. Um, every filmmaker or writer or director 
has a pet project. I have one that I film I've written uh, and wanted to get made, which one day, if I'm not dead before then, we'll get it made. In fact, hang on. <laughs> I was so encouraged to get to get this film made. I actually made up some. This is the film. Lambu, the movie. This is my ball cap. I wear it sometimes. Anyway, uh, one of the stars of my film, when I write, I usually imagine who I want to play the roles. And there is a older Malay couple in this film. And the woman, the wife of this couple in my head from the moment I first had this idea for the film was Adi Benor. And sadly now, obviously, that's not going to happen. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's been this strange behind-the-scenes connection there to my uh, my favorite pet project film, which who knows, one day may get made, but sadly it uh, it won't be as good as it could have been because it, it won't have Adiba in it. But that's all right. We'll move on. All right, lots going on tonight in the show. We've got so much to get to. Let's get right to it. Um, there has been a controversy lately brewing in the U.S. mostly about uh, parents bringing kids to drag shows. Drag shows, I mean, who doesn't? I don't need to explain drag shows to you. Um, we have them here in Malaysia. I know we're not supposed to, but we do. Uh, they're everywhere. For an adult, they're relatively harmless. But they are normally... They get kind of nasty. They're a bit sexual. Uh, they're a lot of fun. They're very funny. I'm not a big fan of drag, but, you know, you do you. Like I always say, you do you. Well, the controversy has been that, especially now it's June, it's Pride Month, lots of events going on. And among them was this event in some bar in Texas where they had a drag show a day for kids and parents brought their kids from what I could see of the videos, and they're out there, I'm not going to play them, you can find them if you want to. From what I saw, it looks a lot like they didn't change much of the drag show when they put it on for a children's audience. Luna Amethyst, welcome into the stream. Yo to you. Good to have you along. Um, now look, I, you know, the whole uh, gay pride thing, fine. I did a show called Has Gay Pride Gone Too Far? Uh, we talked a little about that in our past shows. And in, you know, the whole LGBTQSRABC plus minus divided by whatever, I think they've just, they've watered it down so much that it just means nothing anymore. It's It's silly. You know, trying to be inclusive, you're actually not including anybody because you've watered it down too much. But anyway, back to the drag queen shows. Uh, I'm all for, you know, look, gay people exist, lesbian, bi, transgender people exist, drag queens exist. Uh, drag queen is an entertainment industry, no different than any other entertainer. Uh, Aldwin says, I don't mind drag shows are kept in the white community. Just don't bring it into other communities. What does that have to do with the white community? Uh, two words, RuPaul. Uh, anyway, uh, making an observation. Okay. Um, so, <sighs> gay people exist. To the people who say that it's a choice, well, screw you. Obviously, it's not, and you ought to check out the science, But and you're terribly misinformed. But beyond that, uh, 
I just didn't know how to feel or how I felt about this whole bringing kids to drag shows because my initial reaction is it is totally inappropriate. These things are held in bars, which normally are 18 or 21 in older places. They're quite sexual normally in a fun, kidding way for adults. I understand the idea behind trying to make things normalized for children, and I'm all for that. The fact that somebody happens to be in a gay relationship or lesbian relationship or, you know, whatever relationship is, you do you. And and it happens. It's not abnormal. It goes on in millions of households around the world. But somehow bringing kids to drag shows just didn't sit right with me. And I couldn't think of how to say it. And... This got uh, published, got put online today on Rumble.com. It's from the Bongino Report, which is Dan Bongino's uh, news outlet place. Big fan of Dan Bongino. Y'all know that. Uh, And this summed up brilliantly exactly why I have a problem with kids at drag shows. And I don't think... They belong there. Let me make sure I get this right. I'm going to turn on the, the sound. sound. And yeah, that's, that's true, Aldwin. He, he did capitalize on it. it. All right, my, my voice, voice might, might be doubled, doubled but, but I'll, it'll, it'll fix, fix it in a minute. minute. So anyway, so anyway uh, this, this is, is I, I, can't I can't give credit, credit to who this drag queen is, is but she is amazing. amazing. And, and listen to what she has to say about bringing kids to drag shows, because this is spot on. Everybody Everybody needs needs to to listen listen to to these these words because because it's it's the truth. What what in the hell has a drag queen ever done to make you have so much respect for them and admire them so much? Other than put on makeup and, and jump on the floor and writhe around and do sexual things on stage. I have absolutely no idea why you would want that to influence your child. Would you want a stripper or a porn star to influence your child? It it makes no sense at all. A drag queen performs in a nightclub for adults. There is a lot of filth that goes on, a lot of sexual stuff that goes on. And backstage, there's a lot of nudity, sex, and drugs. Okay? So I don't think that this is an avenue you would want your child to explore. They could explore dressing up at home like we all did, like all gay boys did. We all dressed at home and we had a great time. We had a great time with our girlfriends, putting on makeup, trying on clothes, things like that. But to actually get them involved in drag is extremely, extremely irresponsible on your part. And I understand you might want to look like you're with it, that you're cool, that you're woke, that you're not a Nazi, that you're not a homophobe, whatever, whatever it may be. But you can raise your child to be just a normal, regular, everyday child without including them in gay, sexual things. And honestly, you're not doing the gay community any favors. In fact, you're hurting us, okay? 
We have already had a reputation of being pedophiles and being perverts and deviants. We don't need you to bring your children around. So you keep your kids at home or take them to Disneyland or take them to Chuck E. Cheese. But if you need your child to be entertained by a big human in a costume or in makeup, take them to the circus or something. When they turn 18, then why don't you take them to the clubs on their 18th birthday? Because it's an adult thing, okay? So don't ruin your child's life and don't ruin us because that's what you're doing. There you go. There you go. What, what in the hell has it... Uh, like I said, if you're listening to the podcast, that is a drag queen on camera saying exactly what I couldn't find the words to to put out there. And I'm so glad the Bongino Report posted that because that, like I said, it bugged the hell. And you're right, Alwyn, rare to hear this from a drag queen. But you know what? That is the most honest and open assessment of why it is not a good idea to be bringing your kids to drag shows. Now, drag queen wants to read a book to kids or something in a school. I'm not sure that's appropriate either, but, you know, whatever. We can have that argument another day. But bringing your kids to an 18 or 21 and older club, nightclub, bar, and watching a drag show, no. Sorry, it just doesn't sit right with me. And I put the link to this uh, video from the Bongino Report in our show notes. I encourage you to go check it out, share it around with your friends. It's brilliant. It really is. And thank you to who I wish I could credit who that uh, that performer is. It, it doesn't give any credit uh, to who that person is, but kudos. Kudos indeed. Well said, well put. All right. Nice. Let's see what else we got going on here tonight. Man, I'm telling you, it's turned into a busy Saturday, huh? Uh, oh, love this. Randall Lee Jones, public post on Facebook and uh, brilliant, brilliant post. It's all just words. Uh, there's a picture of uh, Mel Gibson in uh, whatever that film was he was in. Victory, hold, do not flee. You know that one? Yeah. Anyway, it, this is from uh, Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it seems very appropriate these days when you have things like red flag laws being discussed, the Second Amendment under fire. This is rather interesting. Listen closely to these words from Solzhenitsyn. The most terrifying force of death comes from the hands of men who just wanted to be left alone. They try so very hard to mind their own business and provide for themselves and those they love. They resist every impulse to fight back, knowing the forced and permanent change of life that will come from it. They know that the moment they fight back, their lives as they have lived them are over. The moment the men who wanted to be left alone are forced to fight back is a form of suicide. They are literally killing off who they used to be, which is why when forced to take up violence against those who murdered their former lives, they fight with raw hate and a drive that cannot be fathomed 
by those who are merely play-acting at politics and terror. True terror will arrive at these people's door, and they will cry, scream, and beg for mercy. But it will fall upon the deaf ears of men who just wanted to be left alone. From Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Wow. Some very powerful words. Hey, we didn't do our Miko update tonight, but it just seemed a bit inappropriate to be celebrating and talking. I'd just give you a brief Miko update. She's doing great. Uh, ate her dinner all by herself tonight without us having to feed her, and uh, she's uh, hanging in there. Had a couple of good walks today, so thanks to uh, all those who are always sending me messages and emails saying, uh, how's Miko? She's great. Thank you. I thought she was going to come up on the show tonight. She was in the studio earlier, but uh, as soon as I fire the cameras up, she knows that sound, and pew, she's gone. <laughs> all right. Do you curse? Do you use curse words? I got some curse words for you you can use that you can't get in trouble for. This is the coolest post. It's in our show notes if you want to check it out. It's from uh, social.entrepreneur.com. Social, basically. Curse words from the past that really haven't aged very well. <laughs> Language is constantly changing, and swear words are no exception. You know, just a little point of personal whatever here. There was a time when I was a kid, probably nine, ten years old. Barbara Osuch, who was older than us, used to hang out. We all looked up to her because she was the older girl. And the middle finger, you know, when you flip somebody off. Aldwin has a dirty mouth. Okay. Well, don't say unfortunately. It's a way of expressing yourself. Nothing wrong with that. Anyway, the middle finger, she told us that that meant stick it up your where the sun don't shine. So for all my life, I always thought that means shove it, basically. You know, the well, I'll do a family-friendly middle finger. <coughs> Thank you, Dan Bongino. <laughs> um, but over time and, and originally it did mean that for your sake I won't put the F word in the chat that's alright Alvin you say what you want to say but thank you it'll probably get bleeped anyway uh, anyway over time the f middle finger evolved to mean F you and Language evolves, even dirty words. You'd be surprised to learn our ancestors long ago had a very rich vocabulary of curse words. And uh, some, they, they mean absolutely nothing these days, but they did back then. And remember, these were a time when, you know, even gosh darn was a, you know, socially unacceptable thing. Uh, churl is a word. It's basically like the word trailer trash. Uh, ever felt like slinging around the term trailer trash, but thought better of it at the last minute? Well, this could be the word for you. Churl, C-H-U-R-L. 
In a time when Europe had clearly defined upper and lower classes, calling someone a churl was a major insult. You're a churl. Given it means peasant, you can see why. Uh, the nouns disappeared, but we still use part of it in the word churlish today. Knave. Now, knave is one. K-N-A-V-E. That's one we've all likely heard of before. Headed to the Renaissance's illicit underbelly for this slur. Things are about to get criminal. If you ever need to call out a liar, a cheat, or a con artist, then knave is the word you're looking for. Its connotations were not always so immoral, though. Originally, it would have been used to refer to a peasant or a servant in medieval times. There's a bit of a knave there. Uh, cozen. The verb cozen. C-O-Z-E-N. Reserved only for the sneakiest of scoundrels during the Renaissance. It likely originated from the phrase to make a cousin of, which was a popular scam of the time. Someone would claim to be part of the family and then con the target out of their money. One moment you're sharing a cup of tea, and the next you're penniless. Cozen is the word. C-O-Z-E-N. Here's a great one. Scumber. S-C-U-M-B-E-R. Scumber. Before the dawn of the poop emoji, there was no better way to lament on excrement than scumber. Although the lighthearted phrase doesn't exactly sound like a curse word, rest assured it is pure filth. And be warned, if you want to try and bring this verb back, it only applies to dogs and foxes. So be careful where you scumber. <laughs> All right, one more. There's a bunch of these. Go check out the link in our show notes. There's a bunch. Splud. This was my favorite. Splud. S-B-L-O-D. S-Blood. Splud. Shakespeare was famous for including this swear word in a lot of his plays. When a character uses this exclamation like, Splud, I would my face were in your belly. Which is from Henry the... Uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One. You know something's about to go down when they they use that word. It is short for God's blood, splood, and it packs a powerful punch in the Bard's work. So there you go, splood, God's blood. <laughs> Again, check out the link in our show notes. It's down there and below in our description. Very weird stuff and all kinds of very strange uh, swear words from days gone by. <laughs> very weird. I'm telling you, I managed to find the weirdest stuff for tonight's show. <laughs> um, do you know Durian? If you're listening in or watching in from around the other parts of the planet and you're not in Southeast Asia, you may or may not know Durian. It's become more popular in other parts of the world. In fact, exporting durian has become quite a huge financial uh, boon. We have durian here in Malaysia, of course. It's our national fruit, as far as I know. Uh, there is durian in Thailand, Indonesia, lots of Southeast Asian countries, but uh, we like to claim it as our own, as we often do, like nasi lemak and things like that. It is an odd fruit. 
it is a very smelly fruit. If you don't know durian, look it up. Uh, let me show you a picture here of uh, durian. You can see it's a very spiky. Uh, there you go. There is uh, there is durian. This thing here, you open it up, and inside is this yellow, custardy, textured, fleshy stuff. I love durian. Most Caucasian people do not. Most Western people can't stand the smell. They can't get it past their nose. Uh, once they try it, most don't like it anyway. There's all kinds of, you can find videos out there of Caucasian Western people trying durian and throwing up and bleh, oh, it's disgusting. I love it. Now, I got to say this, I've said it before, I'm a little biased to Thai durian because I find it a bit sweeter than the Malaysian durian. But for the first time last durian season, I tried Musan King, which is the most expensive durian. Well, used to be. And boy, what a difference. Musan King durian, unbelievably good. Unbelievably expensive. However... Not as expensive as this durian. There's only one tree in existence that produces this durian. It is so rare, it costs 4,000 ringgit. 4,000 ringgit for a durian. And there's only one tree that makes this rare durian. The article from World of Buzz, links in our show notes. Check it out. Malaysia, known for being a country that loves their durians. However, even for locals, uh, durians like Musan King, there you go, can be quite expensive, around 50 ringgit per kilo. But if you think Malaysians' durians are expensive, oh, this one's from Indonesia. Ah, you see, I read these when I bring them to you. I don't pre-read because I want to be surprised like you. Wow. It's more than 4,000 ringgit. Now, currently, I think the ringgit is just under $4.50, or four fifty ringgit to one USD, something like that. Anyway, unbelievable. Look at this thing. According to Tribune News, the durian known as J-Queen, priced at uh, 14 million rupiah, that's the Indonesian currency, per fruit which comes out to about 4,000 ringgit, which is around, what, 1,000 USD, a little, bit, a little bit less maybe. It is sold at Plaza Asia in Tusik, Malaya. On the first day of their sales, they showcased only two out of the four J-Queen durians they were planning to sell. Both sold out on the day itself. There it is. Look at that. Looks like a normal durian to me. Uh, it's uh, founded by a 32-year-old Indonesian, Akka. Akka's goal was to make a high-quality species of durian in order to display Indonesians' love for the fruit. It's said to be so tasty because the delicious golden meat manages to achieve the perfect balance of bitter and sweet. The flesh is also uh, said to taste nutty and buttery, and the fruit and seeds are a rather round shape, uh, 95% of the durian's pulps are seedless. Hmm, that's a biggie. Also reported, the only uh, it's only harvested once every three years, 
And like I said, there's only one tree in existence that produces this J-Queen durian. 4,000 ringgit per fruit. Wow. It better be worth it at that price. Who could afford that? That is insane. And from Indonesia. How about that? All right. Wow. Well, as you know, before we get on to our book tonight, we read classic books on this stream. And uh, we've been doing that from the beginning. We're doing Sherlock Holmes these days. Uh, we always end with a good news story or somebody doing some random act of kindness or having a brilliant accomplishment. And there is a seven-year-old Malaysian little girl who has accomplished quite a feat. She did a painting of Queen Elizabeth as a part of a promotion with the British Council and all for uh, the Queen's uh, Diamond Jubilee, or Platinum Jubilee, I guess it was. And this seven-year-old Malaysian student's painting is headed to Buckingham Palace. How about that? There she is, all masked up. Her name is Lily. And there is her painting of the queen and her corgi. <laughs> uh, the painting of Queen Elizabeth was named the overall winner at her school's The Queen's Portrait Competition. And uh, she is seven years old, Lily Chong Atkinson, currently waiting for a special letter with great anticipation. After all, it's not every day that you're going to get a letter from Queen Elizabeth II herself. Three year, uh, the year three student from KL, uh, Alice Smith School, recently selected as the overall winner of her school's The Queen Portrait Competition. There she is drawing her masterpiece. Uh, as a result, the British High Com in Malaysia will be sending her A3 size painting to the Queen, and the Queen is expected to write a letter back to Lily in appreciation. Uh, I'm so excited and happy. I can't believe my painting will be in Buckingham Palace. I'm so excited about getting the letter from the Queen, said Lily during a phone interview. The competition held in conjunction with her uh, Platinum Jubilee celebration. Uh, and Lily's mother, Suan Chong, 41 years old, said her daughter found a photograph of Queen Elizabeth uh, on the Internet and then replicated it to the best of her abilities. She was over the moon when the head teacher personally went into her classroom to tell her she was the overall winner. There were category winners that were announced earlier in the day, but they didn't reveal who the overall winner was. And it is Lily. And a big congratulations to you. Wow. Nice job. Fantastic. There she is again with her amazing picture. Lily, congratulations. Well-deserved and nice picture. Apparently, she's been painting for a long time. She takes her paints with her everywhere. And her preferred medium, by the way, is watercolor. <laughs> Man, that's nice. That's a great story. Congratulations, Lily. Be sure and follow up and let us know when you get your letter. Love to see that, too. <laughs> All right. Good old Lily. Here we go. All right. It is time to move on up and over to our book. As you know, we read classic books on this show, and we're doing the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. 
And uh, we are right in the middle of this murder mystery that's been taking place. And here we go. Let me get my place. I cannot admire his taste, I remarked. If it is indeed a fact, he was adverse to a marriage with so charming a young lady as Miss Turner. Ah, thereby hangs a rather painful tale. This fellow is madly, insanely in love with her. But some two years ago, when he was only a lad, and before he really knew her, for she'd been away five years at a boarding school. What does the idiot do but get into the clutches of a barmaid in Bristol and marry her at a registry office? No one knows a word of the matter, but you can imagine how maddening it must be to him to be upbraided for not doing what he would give his very eyes to do. But what he knows to be absolutely impossible. It was sheer frenzy of this sort which made him throw up his hands in the air when his father, at their last interview, was goading him on to propose to Miss Turner. On the other hand, he had no means of supporting himself, and his father, who was by all accounts a very hard man, would have thrown him over utterly had he known the truth. It was with this barmaid wife that he'd spent the last three days in Bristol, and his father didn't know where he was. Mark that point. It is of importance. Good has come out of evil, however, for the barmaid, finding from the papers that he was in serious trouble, and likely to be hanged, has thrown him over utterly and has written to him to say that she has a husband already in the Bermuda dockyard, so that there is really no tie between them. I think that bit of news has consoled young McCarthy for all that he's suffered. Uh, but if he's innocent, who has done it? Ah, who? I would call your attention very particularly to two points. One is that the murdered man had an appointment with someone at the pool, and that the someone could not have been his son, for his son was away, and he did not know when he would return. The second is that the murdered man was heard to cry, Cooey! before he knew that his son had returned. These are critical points upon which the case depends. And now, let's talk about George Meredith if you please, and we shall leave all minors matters until tomorrow. There is serious news this morning, Lestrade observed. It is said that Mr. Turner of the Hall is so ill that his life is despaired of. An elderly man, I presume, said Holmes. About sixty, but his constitution has been shattered by his life abroad, and he's been in failing health for some time. This business has had a very bad effect on him. He was an old friend of McCarthy's, and I may add a great benefactor to him, for I've learned that he gave him Hatherley Farm rent-free. Oh, indeed, that is interesting, said Holmes. Oh, yes, in a hundred other ways he's helped him. Everybody about here speaks of his kindness to him. Really? 
Does that not strike you as a little singular, this McCarthy, who appears to have had little of his own and to have been under such obligations to Turner, should still talk of marrying his son to Turner's daughter, who is presumably heiress to the estate? and that in such a very cocksure manner, as if it were merely a case of proposal, and all else would follow? It is the more strange, since we know that Turner himself was adverse to the idea. The daughter has told us as much. Do not deduce something from that. We have got to the deductions and the inferences, said Lestrade, winking at me. I find it hard enough to tackle facts without flying away after theories and fancies, Holmes. Uh, you're right, said Holmes demurely. You do find it very hard to tackle the facts. Anyhow, I've grasped one fact which you seem to find it difficult to get hold of, replied Lestrade with sudden some warmth, and that is that McCarthy Sr. met his death from McCarthy Jr., and that is all theories to the contrary, are the merest moonshine. Well, moonshine is a brighter thing than fog, said Holmes, laughing. But I'm very much mistaken if this is not Hatherley Farm upon the left. Yes, it is. It was a widespread, comfortable-looking building, two-storied, slate roof, with great yellow blotches of lichen upon the gray walls. The drawn blinds and the smokeless chimneys, however, gave it a stricken look, as though the weight of this horror still lay heavy upon it. We called at the door when the maid, at home's request, showed us the boots which her master wore at the time of his death, also a pair of the sons, though not the pair which he had then had. Having measured these carefully from seven or eight different points, Holmes desired to be led to the courtyard from which we all followed the winding track which led to Boscombe Pool. Sherlock Holmes was transformed when he was hot upon such a sweet scent as this. Men who'd only known the quiet thinker and log logician of Baker Street would have failed to recognize him. His face flushed and darkened, his brows drawn into two hard black lines, while his eyes shone out from beneath them, steely glitter. His face bent downward, his shoulders bowed, his lips compressed, and the veins stood out like a whipcord in his long, sinewy neck. His nostrils seemed to dilate with a purely animal lust for the chase, and his mind was so absolutely concentrated upon the matter before him that a question or remark felt unheeded upon his ears, or at the most only provoked a quick, impatient snarl in reply. Swiftly, silently, he made his way along the track which ran through the meadows, and so by way of the wood to the Boscombe Pond. It was damp, marshy ground, as is all that district, and there were marks of many feet both upon the path and amidst the short grass which bounded it on either side. Sometimes Holmes would hurry on, sometimes stop dead, and once... He made quite a little detour into the meadow. Lestrade and I walked behind him, the detective indifferent, contemptuous, while I watched my friend with the interest which sprang from the conviction that every one of his actions was directed towards a definite end.
The Bosca Pool, which is a little reed-girt sheet of water some 50 yards across, is situated at the boundary between the Hatherley Farm and the private part of the wealthy Mr. Turner. Above the woods, which lined it upon the farther side, we could see the red jutting pinnacles which marked the site of the rich landowner's dwelling. On the Hatherley side of the pool, the woods grew very thick, and there was a narrow belt of sodden grass twenty paces across between the edge of the trees and the reeds which lined the lake. Lestrade showed us the exact spot at which the body had been found, and indeed so moist was the ground that I could plainly see the traces which had been left by the fall of the stricken man. To Holmes, as I could see by his eager face and peering eyes, very many other things were to be read upon the trampled grass. He ran round like a dog picking up a scent, and then turned to my companion. "'What did you go into the pool for?' he asked. "'I fished about with a rake. "'I thought there might be a weapon or some trace, "'but how on earth—oh, tut, 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 I have no time. "'That left foot of yours, with its inward twist, is all over the place. "'A mole could trace it, and there it vanishes among the reeds. "'Oh, how simple it would all have been "'had I been here before they came like a herd of buffalo "'and wallowed all over it. Here is where the party with the lodgekeeper came, and they have covered all tracks for six or eight feet around the body. But here are three separate tracks of the same feet. He drew out a lens and lay down upon his waterproof to have a better view, taking all the time rather to himself than to us. These are young McCarthy's feet. Twice he was walking, and once he ran swiftly so the soles were deeply marked and the heels hardly visible. That bears out his story. He ran when he saw his father on the ground, and then here are the father's feet as he paced up and... What's this, then? It's the butt-end of the gun as the sun stood listening. And this, ha! What have we here? Tiptoes, tiptoes. Square, too, quite unusual boots come, they go, they come again. Of course, that was for the cloak. Now, where did they come from? He ran up and down, sometimes losing, sometimes finding the track, until we were well within the edge of the wood and under the shadow of a great beech, the largest tree in the neighborhood. Holmes traced his way to the further side of this and lay down once more upon his face with a little cry of satisfaction. For a long time he remained there, turning over leaves, dried sticks, gathering up what seemed to me to be dust into an envelope, and examining with his lens not only the ground, but even the bark of the tree as far as he could reach. A jagged stone was lying among the moss. This was also carefully examined and retained. And then he followed a pathway through the woods, until he came to the high road, where all traces lost. It has been a case of considerable interest, he remarked, returning to his natural manner. I fancy that this gray house on the right must be the lodge. I think that I will go in and have a word with Morin, perhaps write a little note. And having done that, we may drive back to our luncheon. You may walk to the cab, and 
I shall be with you presently. It was about ten minutes before we regained our cab and drove back into Ross, Holmes still carrying with him the stone which he'd picked up in the wood. This may interest you, Lestrade, he remarked, holding it out. The murder was done with it. I see no marks. There are none. Well, how do you know, then? The grass was growing under it. It had only lain there a few days. There was no sign of a place whence it had been taken. It corresponds with the injuries, and there is no sign of any other weapon. And the murderer? It is a tall man, left-handed, limps with the right leg, wears thick-soled shooting boots and a gray cloak, smokes Indian cigars, uses a cigar holder, and carries a blunt penknife in his pocket. There are several other indications, but these may be enough to aid in our search. Lestrade laughed. I'm afraid I'm still a skeptic, he said. Theories are all very well, but we have to deal with a hard-headed British jury. New Verons, answered Holmes calmly. You work your own method, and I shall work mine. I shall be busy this afternoon, and shall probably return to London by the evening train. And leave your case unfinished? No, finished. But the mystery? It is solved. Who was the criminal, then, of the gentleman I described? But who is he? Surely it would not be difficult to find out. This is not such a populous neighborhood. Lestrade shrugged his shoulders. I'm a practical man, he said, and I really cannot undertake to go about the country looking for a left-handed gentleman with a game leg. I should become the laughing stock of Scotland Yard. All right, said Holmes quietly. I've given you the chance. Here are your lodgings. Goodbye, and I'll drop you a line just before I leave. Having left Lestrade at his rooms, we drove to our hotel, where we found lunch upon the table. Holmes was silent, buried in thought, with a pained expression upon his face, as one who finds himself in a perplexing position. Look here, Watson, he said when the cloth was cleared. Just sit down in this chair, and let me preach to you a little. I don't quite know what to do and I should value your advice. Light a cigar, and let me expound. Pray do so. And that's where we're going to leave it for tonight. We will find out the conclusion and who this odd fellow is in our next live stream, which will come up on uh, Monday night. Yeah. Cool beans. All right, we will uh, we'll continue this, and I think we'll wrap up this chapter coming up on, uh, like I said, on on Monday's live stream. All right, that's it. That's it. We're done. Uh, Aldwin uh, gets one final thing in here. Jay, I watched Jurassic World Dominion. Yes, it was by far the best among the Jurassic World trilogy. Nine out of ten. 
I'd like uh, how the movie implemented iconic scenes from the first Jurassic movie, giving the audience a nostalgic feel. Great happy ending. We all deserve and love. That's cool. And I love, yes, you're right. When movies do that, it's brilliant. When they kind of recall back or bring back a memory from a past film, really nice, nice touch that uh, they, they, the writers or directors put in there. You're right. I'm glad to hear you like the film. Haven't seen it yet, but desperately want to. So hopefully I will, uh, I will do that sometime soon. Good beans. Thanks for the review. Appreciate that. All right. That's it, folks. Thanks for watching. I'm Jay Sheldon. Good night. Good night.